So we'll, we'll talk about that as we wake, make our way to that chapter. But once we get there, um, it, I think it's going to uh, make a bigger impact in terms of the name. Last week, we opened up in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and we really talked about three, um, oh, how can I say, three foundational elements to the life of a Christian. The first one was the person and work of Jesus, and we parked there for a long time talking about his life, his death, and his resurrection. This is central to the life of a Christian. I think if you miss out on the gospel, if you miss out on the crucifixion, then we ultimately lose Christianity. And so we wanted to uh, pretty much encourage, admonish, and exhort so much in light of the person and work, uh, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second thing that we talked about was saints and servants. And actually, I'll talk about that last. Uh, the third thing that we walked into was, was grace and peace. And the reason I want to mention that second is because it is through the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus that we have been given grace, that is unmerited favor, and that we have been given peace, that because uh, when we are outside of Jesus, we are in constant rebellion toward him. And upon him calling us to himself, he has given us peace that we are no longer at war with God. And as a result, we become saints and servants. And those two words tripped everybody out, right? Because saint tends to have some other uh, concepts. And what we said in light of what we see in scripture is that the term saint is an individual or a group of people that have been set aside by God, made holy, not perfect, but that they have been set apart, not set aside, but set apart by God. And as a result, we are then marked by the work of Jesus and are made servants that we ultimately serve him and serve one another as a result of who we are. And as a result of who we are, that then determines what we do, right? So that was kind of the big push last week. That was a giant recap. If you want more and even into the history of Philippi, go ahead and check out that series or that sermon. It's already online. Today, we're going to find ourselves ultimately talking about gospel partnership, right? And that's something that we're going to find ourselves in. I think it's in verse 4, as we unpack these next three verses, we're going to be talking about gospel partnership. And so here's what I'll do. I'm going to read the verses that we're going to find ourselves in. I'm going to give us some illustration. And then we're going to talk about three things today. Excuse me. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to, so if you're a note taker, we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about partnership. And ultimately, finally, we're going to talk about sanctification. Okay, those are the three areas that we're going to find ourselves in today. So let me pray, or excuse me, let me read, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump into our time. So again, uh, this is Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Here we go. Uh, and Paul writes, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship you through your word, 
Lord, I pray that I would be set aside and that it would be your Holy Spirit at work and the one who would be speaking. I pray that your Holy Spirit would also be at work in the lives of my brothers and sisters, that this time would glorify you and that this time would serve not just as a reminder, but even a conviction that as believers who belong to your son Jesus, we are not only reconciled to you, but we are reconciled to one another. And so, Father, I pray that this would, again, glorify you, that this would begin to heal wounds for many, uh, and that ultimately we would fix our eyes on the person and work of your son, Jesus. And so we ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. So last week we got a little bit nerdy, right? Talked about a bunch of things. We're going to do the same thing today. And so I'm going to start by way of illustration. This is a rhetorical question because I feel like people would answer this right off the spot. I don't want you to answer it, right? So what defines, what do you think, defines a friendship? What defines a relationship? I want you to think about that, put it in the back burner, maybe even process it as I'm talking. But I want you to think about what defines a friendship or what defines a relationship. And I should probably say and keep it with relationship because that funnels a lot of things, not just friendships. But yeah, but what defines a relationship? Ultimately, uh, by, by way of another question, why are so many people, why are we, or why can we be lonely? You see, if you think about it, in spite of the technological advances that we've had, the amount of breakthroughs that have been going on, the convenience and reliability and the efforts of things like social media, people are connected more than ever in history, yet feel absolutely lonely in a world of connectivity. Kind of ironic, but nevertheless, feel absolutely lonely. And as we continue into this illustration of loneliness and relationships, I thought I'd give you a couple of uh, some, some statistics. Now, three of these are some surveys and studies, and I'll give you some of their, uh, their sources as we go through. But in light of a lack of connectivity, uh, Oxford University professor of psychology Robin Dunbar, in a study done in 2016, said that people have the capacity to maintain only as if it's very little, but uh, have a capacity to maintain only 150 relationships. Now, that's family, that's uh, uh, work associates, that's close friends, that's people at church. Now, that doesn't mean that the level of depth that you know all of these individuals goes super deep, but at the very least, we have the capacity to maintain about 150 relationships. Here's where it gets uh, interesting. As if that wasn't interesting enough. Introverts. 150 relationships. Out of those 150 relationships, only four of those people are considered dependable. Of those 150 relationships, only 13 statistically show sympathy in times of emotional crisis. Right? Additionally, in a study done in 2006 by the American Sociological Review, they wrote that the average American, now this is in 2006, the average American only has two close friends. 
This is down from three in 1985, right? And so we don't necessarily have figures after that, but what we can assume is out of 150 people, four are dependable, but you're really going to be close to at least two of them, if not only one, because of the study done more than 10 years ago. I find that to be incredibly, uh, not fantastic, but amazing and ironic in the sense of we are so connected more than ever. In an article published by the Huffington Post in 2016, uh, teenagers, 16 and up, 85% of teenagers exhibit different personalities from real life on social media. I feel like that was a given, and it's not just teenagers. Right? It is not just teenagers. So the question is, how is it that we commonly define relationships? That was, that was the big question. Let me give you two answers. Now, in giving you these two answers, I'm not saying that this is the only way. I'm not saying that I'm a professional in sociology or even psychology. I'm not saying that. But I will give you, at the very least, two common answers to how you and I tend to define relationships. And that is proximity and life seasons. Proximity and life seasons. And if you're like, I don't know about that, really. If you remember high school, how many friends are you? Like, how many of those friends are still like your BFFs? Go back to your yearbook. I did. I went, actually went back to my junior high yearbook. And, uh, and you, when you open it up, everybody's so encouraging, hopefully, in those yearbooks, right? Never change. Best friends forever. Can't wait to see you in eighth grade. And then that was the last time you ever had any kind of connection to that individual. Now, that was me in junior high. You could apply that even in high school, right? It's not extremely common to have all the same friends, though some people choose to still live in 1987. That's cool, right? Not everybody has the same connectivity to their friends, if connectivity at all, right? And so we tend to define it by proximity. So if we use the example of high school, and I think about one of my friends in high school, his name was Ben. Uh, when I think about Ben, he and I had several classes together. He and I grew up in, in the same elementary, the same junior high, and ultimately the same high school. And so Ben and I hung out several times because we were in the same class. We had the same teachers, or we had the same lunch period, and we were in a similar life season. We were in elementary, or we were in junior high, or we were in high school. Now, that's one example, but yet you can still do it on your own. For example, if you're a new parent, that's a life season. Maybe you hang out with new parents. All of a sudden, you want to see where all the other new parents are at because now you have a child. Or maybe if you are a newlywed or you're engaged, all of a sudden you want to find out where all the couples are because all those couples get it. Whatever it is, they get it, right? If you're single, all of a sudden, like, where are all the single people? We want to hang out with the single people because they relate to us. So we tend to look for not just proximity, but we tend to look for the same life season. And the reason we look for the same life season is because we want to be able to relate to one another. And that's not necessarily bad, but when we define relationships just by proximity and life season, what ultimately is going to happen is that we're going to be incredibly disappointed, right? We're going to be incredibly disappointed. <clears throat> And so if we only define relationships by proximity and life season, going back to one of the, the, the second question I asked, then why are people so lonely? Why, why are people so lonely? 
I think in order to best answer this question, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I'm not going to read the whole chapters, but I am going to paraphrase Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You see, in Genesis 1, what we see is the Trinity. We see uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come together to uh, make create creation, right? To make it happen, to make creation happen. But more uh, significantly in this example, what we see is that we see the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit coming together in community and relationship. Like they're not lonely. They are in relationship with one another. That's in chapter one. At the end of chapter one and going into chapter two, right? Specifically in chapter one, verses 26 and 27, right? God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So man is created in chapter one, chapter two, man is created. And not only did God say that it was very good, but one of the biggest things that he says is that we were created in his image and likeness, which means we have characteristics of him, which means we were created specifically for relationship. That's a characteristic of God, relationship, community. Sorry, introverts, right? but you were created for really. Now, that's preaching to the choir. You could ask some of the guys, like, okay, on Friday, we, we, we had the art walk, and then we went to Roosevelt's, and man, I really got to step it up in that because all I want to do is find myself in a corner. And so I really got to step it up in moments like that. I really got to step it up in large crowds, right? I got to psych myself out. I have a speech that you will never hear. <sighs> but nevertheless, we were created for relationships, And then something happened as we go to chapter 3. Something happened. We sinned. We sinned and we rebelled against God. And ultimately, what happened when we rebelled against God is that our relational characteristic is now distorted. We are now separated from God. We are now creating spheres of loneliness and isolation. And so when we talk about isolation and loneliness and things like that, part of that is a result of sin. Because that wasn't its our intentional design. And so when we hear things like this, when we go through Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and hear how ultimately sin came into the world, right, and separated us, distorted the relationship, and disconnected the relationship that we once had with God, the first thing that many of us, myself included, the first thing that many of us tend to think about is, well, then if we are now separated, then the cure must be friendship. The cure must be marriage. The cure must be business partners. Partnerships. The cure must be some sort of a relationship with someone else. Now, friendships and relationships and marriage are not bad. I'm not knocking any of those, right? That's, that's not where I'm headed. But I do think our thought process is incorrect. Our thought process is incorrect when we believe that the cure to our loneliness is another person instead of Jesus. Instead of Jesus. When we come to the understanding and recognition that it is Jesus who defines us, not another person or a relationship, not only are we reminded and given an identity that is rooted in his gospel, but when we do find ourselves in a relationship, we now know what to do with sin. 
Here's what I mean by that. If you go back to what we talked about last week, we talked about grace and peace. That grace is unmerited favor given to us by God, and as a result, we have peace with Him. But those two components are only made possible and are only gifts given to us by God. As a result of them being gifts, we now have the capacity to extend those same gifts to one another. If Christ is not at the center of our relationships, then we don't know inevitably what to do with sin. We don't know how to forgive one another. We don't know how to reconcile with one another. We don't know what to do because it's their fault and my fault. It's the concept of going to counseling and the husband thinks that they're in counseling because of the wife and the wife thinks that they're in counseling because of the husband. Right? That's, that's the, the illustrated... Uh, uh, Similarity. And so when we look at this, ultimately what this means is if we have Jesus at the center of our relationships, then when you and I sin against one another, in theory, we should know what to do because we have been given grace and peace from God. And as a result, we can extend that same grace and peace. Now, I get it, that might sound like it's very fluffy. Relationships, friendships, and life is messy, right? It's super messy. When, when I coached my athletes, I would write down the program of what they were going to do, and uh, yeah, it didn't always look like that. It didn't look as good, because there's several things that take into account, how they were feeling, were they sore, were they hurting, right? And it totally threw off the program. Relationships can be messy. That doesn't change the fact that because we have received grace and peace from God, we can extend it. That might mean having a tough conversation. That might mean having a sit-down. That might mean evaluating our own hearts and who we consider God to be, whether it's actually the person and work of Jesus or hopefully some other relationship. Again, if we define our relationships or if we define the cure to loneliness with another individual or another type of relationship, then it's going to heavily disappoint you. It's going to disappoint you all of the time. And, and many of us, and this might be you, believe that the relationship or friendship or marriage or whatever it is is what's ultimately going to complete you. And that is, what's that is what will ultimately disappoint you. What completes us is the joy that Christ gives us. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't marriages and there aren't friendships. All that happens under that, yes. And with Christ at the center, we now know, in theory, what to do how to extend the same grace that was first given to us, how to receive and extend peace that was first given to us. Doesn't mean it's not going to be messy. It's going to be messy, I promise. And so in light of that, we jump into the text. So now we have this illustration of relationships. We have this illustration of, uh, of, of what it means to have, or not yet what it means, but what it might look like to have Jesus at the center. And so we look to verses 3 through 6. 
And so starting in verse 3, the first thing that Paul writes is, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer. Man, Paul's so awesome. Like he makes me feel so like... Here's what Paul is saying in in verse 3. What Paul is saying is that he has this strong desire to pray for, every time they come across his mind, to pray for the church in Philippi. And he is not praying for necessarily their physical needs. He's praying specifically for their spiritual needs with urgency. We'll learn more about this in later in this chapter and in chapter 4, that there was some quarreling going on in the church in Philippi. And what Paul is saying is every time they come across his mind, not those individuals, but the church, every time they come across his mind, he stops what he's doing and he prays for them because he has relationship with them, because he has shared memories with them, and because of the grace and peace that has taken place in those relationships. What's also so hmm, encouraging is that Paul writes to the church in Philippi talking about their prayers with joy. Now, I want to be specific about this section. He writes to them with joy as a friend who has shared things in the gospel with them. Like what brings them together is the gospel of Jesus. And so he is writing joyfully to them. Now, here's where it gets real specific. When we look at friendships, as I talked about just earlier, when we look at friendships in terms of proximity and life season, this dude has a fondness and a care and a sincere heart for the church in Philippi, and he is not close in proximity. He's in a prison in Rome. He is not in the same life season as them. Some of them may have gotten married. Some of them are single. Some of them are family. Whatever. All that stuff. This dude is by himself in prison. Four years later, he's about to get executed. He's not, in this, he's not in proximity with them. He doesn't share the same life season. In fact, the church is flourishing. The church is thriving. And yet he writes to them joyfully not because of proximity and not because of life season, but specifically because of the joy that they both share in the gospel and the memories that that has created. And he can honestly, sincerely, and lovingly say that he loves them and that they love him. And so joy then is not an emotion, but a lifestyle. Joy is not an emotion, but a lifestyle. And Paul's prayer to the church in Philippi reflects not just the lifestyle, but the relationship he has with his friends. He's writing to them as a friend who loves a ton of friends to report how he's doing, to talk about the memories they've had, to encourage them, and ultimately to exhort them in the gospel. So that's the first thing. And so with that, man, so James and I were looking at this text earlier this week, and that just convicted the both of us, I think more me, because I came to this realization where 
Paul's like, man, when people, when, when the church in Philippi specifically come across my mind, man, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to pray for them with urgency and specifically to their spiritual needs. And I was like, man, that's so cool. I don't know if I do that consistently because I probably don't with others, including my family. And so I was like, man, this dude's in prison. Again, not marked by proximity or life season. And he is stopping what he is doing to thank God for the church in Philippi, his relationship and memories with them, and ultimately praising God for the joy he has with them in the gospel. And it led me to conviction. And so the question is, man, how often do you stop and pray for those that come across your mind, whether it's here at Storehouse or friends that we have in other churches here in the valley? But I mean it like meaningfully, not one of those Christian like, hey, I'll pray for you, bro. Right? We do that a lot. Man, this is happening. Praying right now, I think. Right? Or maybe you just think of them. But do you uh, legitimately take time to genuinely and lovingly pray for them? Man, this has been an area that I've just been convicted in over the past year because what I tend to do is like, man, I will devote myself to prayer in these spaces only. What Paul is doing in the church, to the church of Philippi is, man, they just came across my mind. I'm stopping what I'm doing to pray about them or to pray for them and to pray for everything that we have labored in together. I think that's pretty baller, right? And sometimes for me, I compartmentalize things too much that I'll say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for the church on Thursday, <laughs> right? And so I think this is an area that not only can we be encouraged, but also exhorted in as believers in our life of prayer. So that's number one, that's prayer. The second thing, as Paul keeps going, and this is all connected, the second thing that he talks about is partnership. Partnership is kind of the end of verse 3 and into verse 4. Uh, where he says, or actually starting verse four, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Here's where we're going to get nerdy. And let me give you the structure a little bit. I'm going to break down this section and then we'll move on to the third section. And then we're going to come back and park here once more. Okay, here we go. When it comes to partnership, he says, man, not only he's writing joyfully to them because of the relationship he has with them, because of the partnership that they share in the gospel. That word partnership, right, the translated version of that in the Greek means fellowship, okay? It means fellowship. Now, I think the word fellowship gets thrown around a lot in Christian and in church culture uh, to where ultimately many times it gets lost, assumed and forgotten. And so by way of transition and very briefly, I want to talk about what fellowship is not and then what fellowship is. Okay. So here are two things that fellowship is not. Number one, fellowship is not an event. Many times when we talk about fellowship, it usually surrounds itself around a singular event, a potluck, right? That is, come have fellowship at this potluck, this special occasion, this special event that happens, I don't know, uh, 4th of July, come fellowship with us, right? It tends to be surrounded around this, this one singular event only. In other words, it's not recurring and there isn't life shared in it. It just happens once and then it is over, right? That's, that tends to be one of the ways in which we define fellowship. I mean, buildings are literally devoted to fellowship. Like it's called, what, they're called like fellowship halls. I don't know what they are. 
But you know what I mean? So they, they tend to be devoted toward that for these events. Number two, fellowship is not hospitality. Fellowship is not hospitality. Hospitality, according to the Bible, is where we as believers invite those who do not know Jesus into our house to serve them and love them and take care of them. That is hospitality according to Scripture. Now, the two things fellowship is, is number one, it is gospel-centered. Now, these terms are going to sound very vague, but I didn't know how much more specific to get. But number one is that fellowship is a group, a body of believers, right? A body of believers. So that's the second part. That's community. A body of believers rooted in and grounded in the gospel. So when we get together at one another's houses or at Roosevelt or here at the incubator. Yeah, we're having fellowship, but it is ongoing. It is life that is shared outside specifically of Sundays. It is sharing life together, growing. And just like a family, we encounter life seasons, but life seasons aren't what determine our relationship. It is the gospel of Jesus that determines our relationship or that defines it, right? And so when we look at this, if you want to get a little bit more nerdy, when we're talking about fellowship, the the Greek word is called koinonia. Now, you can hear some of the Latin uh, phraseology in there. So if you're like, I'm not going to remember koinonia, right? I don't even know if this makes sense. Just think of the Spanish word colonia, right? What's a colonia? It's a neighborhood. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, I got you, Lee, right? It's a neighborhood where everybody knows everybody. The family all lives there. All the neighbors know one another. All the houses are blue, yellow, and pink, right? Everybody hangs out, and every single Sunday, there's a giant barbecue with a huge base coming from some dropped Silverado, and everybody is just partying, right? Like, that's a colonia, koinonia, right? It's a group of people getting together, just sharing that time together and doing it all of the time. That's where it comes from. Now you know. You're Hispanic theologians. So those are two things that, uh, excuse me, those are two things that fellowship is. And in the end, y'all, fellowship is to be a reflection of the work of Christ in his people. About a year ago, we were walking through the book of Ephesians, and one of the things that Paul says was very profound. He says that God chose uh, chose the church to reveal his manifold wisdom. In other words, what he is saying is God chose the church to reveal himself to others. Fellowship isn't an event. Fellowship is what we do. It is a part of who we are. And it is rooted, grounded in the gospel of Jesus. But man, this is, uh, you know, sometimes I don't really like that because... you know, we butt heads with other people in the church. Yes. And because of the grace and peace that was given to you, we should know what to do with sin. We should know what to do with sin. We should know how to respond to one another. We should know how to extend grace and peace to one another. We should know how to have those tough conversations. 
Instead of allowing sin to continue to separate us, isolate us, and push us further away, not just from one another, but Jesus. We're going to come back to partnership in a bit. The third thing Paul talks about is sanctification. Now, you're going to see how prayer, partnership, and sanctification are all just uh, connected to one another. And so this comes out of verse 6, where Paul writes, And I am sure of this, that he, he's talking about Jesus, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. That God is not, the only, is not only the one who initiates salvation, but he is also the one who sanctifies us. Here's the definition for sanctification. And it's a two-part, right? The first thing is that sanctification is the ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus. It is the process, the ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus. Now, in churches, many of the time, we stop here. We stop where it says, okay, to be more like Jesus, I get it. Uh, Maybe I've grown, maybe I've matured a little bit. But there's a second part to sanctification. It is the process of becoming more like Jesus. And as we mature in our faith, we grow to hate our sin even more. You don't grow up to learn more and become more like Jesus while loving your sin at the same time. It doesn't work that way. As we are conformed into his image, we mature in our faith and hate our sin all the more. I think when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification for many Christians, and again, this may be you, this is the section or this is the part where it gets confusing or where you're just not being honest. Here's what I mean. I'm not saying that we're not going to fumble, that we're not going to sin, that we're not going to jack it up, but because we clearly do. However, there are times where in sanctification, one of two things are happening, and I don't even call one of them sanctification, but sometimes what tends to happen is that, man, maybe we'll plateau, we'll hit this season, and we're struggling, and we're toiling, but you can clearly see that God has been at work in you, and maybe it takes some other people to help you get out of that rut. I get that. Those are seasonal things that's going to happen. Every Christian's going to fall. Then there are those who say, man, they love Jesus and they cannot identify maturity or fruit in their life and still um, participate habitually in their sin. I'm not sure if you know Jesus. We cannot say that we belong to Jesus, yet there be no growth. John 15 says that there's two things. We're either going to be pruned so that we can bear more fruit or we will be plucked. That's it. Sanctification is the ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus. And as we mature in our faith, we grow to hate our sin even more. It doesn't accompany us in this. And so if you say, man, I, I just love my sin too. Okay, if you're loving your sin too much, then my admonition to you is to repent. 
to repent and confess your sin and trust in Jesus. That, that's, that would be my biggest two cents for what that's worth. That would be where I would take you to, to repent, confess and repent of your sin and turn and trust Jesus. After all, it's going to be His Spirit who works in and through you. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak or work apart from Scripture. And so when we use uh, terms like, you just don't understand, I don't know about this, it's just that because of this season, no, 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 no. Let's, let's go down to the core of this all. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And let's look at His work in your life. If there is none, then we need to have, I guess, a different conversation and if there is fruit, man, let's praise God for that. Sanctification for some is going to be slow. That's okay. That is okay. Listen to, this is Paul in Romans 8. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Sanctification is the process of becoming uh, more like Jesus and hating our sin as we grow in that. And then Paul closes in verse 6 by saying, the day of Jesus Christ. What he's talking about is the return of Jesus. You know, when he reclaims his bride, the church, and the work of salvation is now complete. Man, so until that day comes, he's just going to be at work in us. And that's good. Because that humbles us. That challenges us. That forces us to, man, either evaluate our hearts or have conversations. Right? And I'll repeat this statement at the end. But if you haven't heard anything, then just hear this. Sanctification, that process of becoming more like Jesus, sanctification transforms us into the image of Jesus, assures us of our salvation, and brings us closer in partnership with one another. It reconciles us to one another. Remember, reconciled is that fancy word for relationship. Sanctification transforms us into the image of Jesus, assures us of our salvation, and reconciles us to one another. Now, before closing, I want to go back up to partnership. I mentioned this earlier, and I'll, I'll repeat it once more. But sin separates us, not only from God, but one another. And I'm not saying that we're always going to be happy that we're not going to encounter difficult seasons. But what I am saying is that we can be reconciled. And I think when we talk about partnership, fellowship, community, all those things, I think it is here, it is here where I've seen people hurt, betrayed, and taken advantage of. Because most of the time, this is where I see it. So over the past couple of months, and I'm not thinking about anybody specific, but over the past couple of months, we've had, uh, man, we've had a lot of new people coming in through our doors. Welcome. Hi. You guys are awesome. Thank you for hanging out with us. I mean that. And one of the common stories that we have heard, that some of the, our leadership, 
one of the common stories that we have heard has been spiritual abuse in their past, maybe domineering leadership, betrayal, eh, you know, some church hurt, stuff like that. But nevertheless, it's serious, and it has obviously affected them, and it affected them to a great deal. And so, if that's you, man, number one, thank you for joining us this morning. Number two, I am so sorry that you've experienced that. Number three, as you join us, even if it's just Sunday mornings, we would just love to care for you. We would just love to care for you and for your heart. And uh, if you're like, man, I just want to sit and watch and be, that's totally cool with us. If that, if that is our avenue to care for you in the best way possible, then please let us do that. The second part is, those of us who man, have, have, have been on the wave of what is now Storehouse Community Church over the past year, have undergone a season of healing and a season of transition. And... As people come in who share similar stories, my admonition to you, if you're a member here at Storehouse, is to care for them. To care for them because you specifically know what that kind of a season looks like. Undergoing a ton of healing, trying to figure out what's next, trying to figure out what's going on. This is the time where we care for one another. And we care for one another because at the center of it all lies the gospel of Jesus, where he has given us grace and peace. So don't neglect this season. Don't think, man, we're finally out of it. It's been almost a year. We're coming up on our one-year anniversary. That's awesome. Very cool. And, and, we are called to care for one another. And especially as those who come in who have been hurt, we're going to care for them as well. Remember, sanctification transforms us into the image of Jesus, assures us of our salvation, and reconciles us to one another. That is the gospel. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we close this time, um, Lord, as we close this time, I pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, I pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, we would be convicted of our sin. That is, man, our separation uh, from you, our isolation from one another that we would be convicted of our sin so that you, through your Holy Spirit, would fix our eyes on Jesus and through that lead us to reconcile with one another. And Lord, we praise you because ultimately all of this was made possible through the person and work of your son, Jesus, where at the cross, not only did he give his life and things are being restored, but we are now reconciled to you through his work. And therefore, you call us ambassadors of reconciliation. 
So I pray that we would place our trust in you as we move forward in reconciliation. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.